Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. You're hearing the national anthem in Navajo from singer-songwriter Michelle Thomas. She'll perform this again at the annual Veterans Powwow hosted by the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. There are over 150,000 veterans who identify as American Indian or Alaska Native and more than 14,000 active duty service members who identify as American Indian, according to reports from the Federal Departments of Veteran Affairs and Defense. This hour on Where We Live, we celebrate our Native American veterans. We'll explore why we serve a National Institute of the American Indian exhibit. But first, Eastern Pequot Tribal Counselor and U.S. Army veteran Valerie Gambrell joins us. Welcome to Where We Live, Counselor Gambrell. Hello. And our listeners can join in on this call to 888-720-9677 or 888-720-WNPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Counselor Cambrell, I just want to ask you, you were in the U.S. Army intelligence field for four years and received the rank of sergeant. What made you serve? Um, well, what really made me serve is um, I once I graduated from school, I wanted to move away from knowledge, and I knew I wouldn't just do that. And I had, you know, my family members that served in the Army, so... <clears throat> that's originally why I picked to go into the Army. Where'd you train? Fort McClellan, Alabama. And then where were you deployed? Uh, I went to school in Pensacola, Florida, and my first duty station was uh, San Antonio, Texas. And then I went to Okinawa, and I had a temporary duty station in Korea. Can you tell me a little bit more about your service when you were in uh, Okinawa and uh, and I guess the temporary duty station in uh, Korea? Sorry. Yep. Um, well, I really loved Okinawa a lot. Um, it's a very small island with a lot of military on it. Um, in Korea, we went. I went to NCO school for three months in Korea. And what'd you do as a, as a sergeant? What's uh, I understand it's a field of intelligence. Can you just tell me a little bit more about your service there? Um, what I essentially did was I copied radio signals and Morse code. Coming up, we're going to we're going to hear from uh, the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian about their uh, exhibit and book. It's called "Why We Serve Native Americans in the United States Armed Forces." You were one of the first people, as I understand it, to step foot in that museum during the opening ceremony in 2004. Can you tell me about that? Yes, we actually took a bus um, with tribal members, and we actually uh, marched with our honor guard. It was amazing to see so many Native Americans come together and just 
you know, march down. It really was a sight to see. Um, and it was an honor to be the first ones to be allowed into the museum. Actually, our picture hangs in the museum. Is that a point of pride for you, having that picture in there? Definitely, yes. You tell me a little bit about the trip down there. Would you Did you take the family to go down there? Um, actually, we took a bus. Um, we took uh, tribal members. It was elders, youth, everybody. We drove, We rolled down on a bus. Um, we stayed in a hotel for a couple of days. Um, we were able to take the kids to go see the different monuments. Um, and the museum itself was just so amazing for the kids. I, it's something that I'll never forget, and I'm sure that they'll never forget. I mean, we've lost a great many elders since then, but it really was a sense of pride for our tribe. You feel like the kids and maybe maybe any family that didn't serve, do you think that they kind of felt what you were feeling there? Do you think they had that same kind of experience? Definitely. I mean, I know for I know for definitely my kids, I, I talked a lot about, you know, my experiences. And like I said, I had, you know, family members that also served in the, in the military, especially the Army. Um, we all served in the Army, except I had one cousin that went into the museum. Mm. Um, I had, you know, my great my um, great grandfather served in World War One. My uncle served in World War Two, and I had another uncle that served in Korea. So um, there was a lot of military. One, one of your uncles won a Purple Heart, right? Yes, he did. He was actually in Korea. Um, he said that he was out in the field, and he was a young kid that was scared. And when it when the you know shooting started. He actually covered this young man with his body, and he ended up getting shot. So that's a that's a powerful story. I I I, I read a little bit in a pre-interview about your your great grandfather and his service in World War One. What can you tell me about uh, what he encountered as he? I'm um, actually well. You back in those you know that time, everybody was colored or they weren't. So he served in the in the colored regiment, and he ended up. Um, dying um he went he went he was back in then in those days you didn't have ptsd or mm. wasn't called that but at that time one of my uncles was lost he was mia and it kind of it drove him over the top and he ended up dying in a mental institution i'm sorry i'm jumping all over the place but you you had uh okay. two two uncles so that would have been two sons that your grandfather had right one was in Correct. Italy in World War Two, and the other one was in uh, Korea, right afterwards. Correct. So this is yeah. so. Th- so I'm trying to just get into your your grandfather's mind here, with all that he's do- dealing with, losing uh, essentially one kid and then having another kid get shot. You feel like he kind of felt the responsibility there. Is that kind of what he was going through? You think? Well, I I think that because he himself was there, so he knew. He knew what they were going through, like the rest of us wouldn't, but he knew exactly what they were going through. So I think that in itself, you know, and he knew how the military was back then, you know, really segregated. And I think he worried a lot that nobody was really, nobody had their back. Yeah, you're talking. I think that played a big part. I'm so sorry to interrupt you there. Finish up. I apologize. No, that's okay. You're talking. No, about, I, I think that. Go ahead. Sorry, you could finish your thought. I apologize. No, that's okay. Go ahead. I think we're both. 
Yeah. So so you're you're talking about the the segregation of the of the military at that point and it being so segregated at the at that point in World War One as well, and then continuing on, I would imagine through Korea at that point. You know, like so. Could you just help me out with understanding why somebody would want to serve in that kind of a of a of a uh, in that kind of a segregated segregated uh, military service branch? And then I guess secondarily, considering the fact that natives have been treated so bad by the country, why they would want to serve? Could you just kind of go through that? I guess, complicated array of reasons why Native Americans would want to serve in the U.S. military? Well, I think for me, it's, this is our country. This was ours first. This is always going to be ours. And so we defend what is ours. That's how I feel. And I think that's how they felt at that time, that this is our country regardless I mean, that's the same way with the African-Americans that served, how bad they were treated and how bad they were treated when they came back and how bad they're treated continuously. But you still have Native Americans that will go into the military and that will do their duty and serve because this is our country. Regardless to what anybody wants to recognize it is. To the kind of discrimination that your grandfather faced maybe your uncles, did that kind of prepare you for the, the service? How did that, How did that? I guess, uh, shape your mind as you entered service? Um, I knew because, I, like, I grew up in the 60s, so I know how it was, and I knew how it was going into the military. And, yes, I did do some fight back, but you can only do so much. But that's not going to stop me from defending what's mine. You're saying you felt discrimination as well. You faced it. Definitely. 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 Yes. I'm sorry to hear that. Can you, can you, would you be comfortable sharing any of your experiences with discrimination? Uh, Just the way that, I mean, the army wants you to think that someone that grew up in Mississippi and was part of the Ku Klux Klan and they put on a green uniform and all of a sudden that racist is gone. It's not, it's there when you're going for promotions, it's there when you're going for jobs. And as a female, it's double because you still have that good old boys club that don't feel that we belong there. I'm glad you mentioned women in service. So we, we talk about, we talk about your family. We talk about discrimination. We talk about women serving with it being so close to veterans day and, and why we had you on here today. Why is it so important that we honor native American veterans? particularly at this time? For me, once again, because despite the fact that the way this country treats Native Americans, we still serve. We still go out there and we still put our life on the line for this country, for our country, that don't treat us like we should be treated. I do understand that the Mashantucket Pequots are honoring you at a powwow this Saturday. It's your first time being honored, right? Yes. Yes. And it's an honor. Do you know what you're going to anticipate feeling in that moment? You always feel that sense of pride. You always feel that sense of pride. Because you went through a lot. I mean, I went through a lot. I know every member that goes into the military goes through a lot. 
and you go through a lot and you deal with a lot and then you come back here and you still go through a lot and still deal with a lot. That's just our life. You think you're going to feel your uncles and your grandfather when you're when you're there getting the honor? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, my uncle's going to be honored and unfortunately, he's not going to be able to be there. Mm-hmm. He's 93 and he's failing, but he can still tell those stories. He'll tell he'll still tell you some of the stories and some of them are very heartbreaking. And very but he would do it again if you ask him. He'll say he'll do it again. My best to your family, Counselor Gambrell. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And there are at least two events honoring Native veterans in our state uh, this weekend. The Institute for American Indian Studies in Washington, Connecticut, will hold an annual Native Veterans Ceremony this Sunday at noon, honoring two Native veterans. And the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center, as we just talked about, will hold an annual Veterans Powwow this Saturday, where Counselor, Counselor Gambrell will be honored. More details and the links to register are on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Frankie Graziano. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. We're spending the hour honoring the important and complex legacy of Native American veterans. Recently, the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian set out to address the complicated question of, quote, why we serve. The museum put together a book and exhibit to explore what turned out to be the many answers to that question. Here to discuss the important legacy of Native servicemen and women is Alexandra Harris, senior editor of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian and co-author of Why We Serve Native Americans in the United States Armed Forces. Welcome to Where We Live, Alexandra. Good morning, Frankie. I just want to remind people listening to us that you could join in on the conversation with Alexandra and I, 888-720-9677. Find us on Facebook and Twitter as well at Where We Live. Alexandra, can you just tell me about the inception of the National Museum of the American Indian and its opening in 2004? 
Sure. Um, the uh, congressional legislation that created the museum was signed in 1989. And um, there are three locations for our museum. Uh, in 1994, the museum in Lower Manhattan in New York City opened um, with our core collection that came from an individual, uh, George Gustav High. And then five years later, our collections resources center in Suitland, Maryland opened. And then in 2004, our uh, museum on the National Mall uh, opened. And as you heard, we had thousands of native people gathering and processing for opening of our museum. 16 narrative, something like that in the museum? Uh, right now we have about six exhibitions open on uh, um, a huge array of topics. Gotcha, so we're an, a unique museum. We feature history, culture, art, um, contemporary art, uh, traditional arts. Um, it runs the gamut of all, the, you know, reflecting the diversity of Native cultures. And then, as I understand it, the National Native American Veterans Memorial opened in 2020. I think this was part of a federal act to recognize and raise awareness of the service of Native Americans in the U.S. Armed Forces. Can you get us from the museum to the opening of the memorial and why it was important to honor Native American service members in this way? Sure. The the congressional legislation to found the memorial has been around for a while, but it, in 2013, it came to our museum uh, in, in an amendment and we were tasked to fundraise and uh, create space on our grounds for the memorial. Uh, and so we 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 take very seriously the values that we hear from Indian countries. So we uh, set out to uh, hold meetings in uh, I think it was thirty five different um, listening sessions in in uh, all across the United States, Alaska, and uh, Hawaii and listening to Native veterans and their families on what they wanted to see reflected in this memorial. We, we held a juried design competition to select, who ultimately selected Harvey Pratt, who is a Cheyenne and Arapaho uh, tribal member, but also a Vietnam veteran as the designer of the memorial. Um, it really, it, uh, it, Native service and, and service to one's own people in general, I think is is more the focus and, and serve and, a devotion and service to your homeland, just like what um, Councillor Gambrell was was indicating, is so strong and universal in Indigenous cultures, and that reflects in military service. Yeah, you're not kidding when you talk about it being set forth essentially a long time ago by the U.S. Mm -hmm. Congress. I think it was 1994, the National, uh, the, uh, National American Veterans Memorial Establishment Act and uh, the uh, Museum of the American Indian, probably around the same time, right? So it's about that's correct. Yeah, thirty something years at that point. Uh, just before we get to the book and the exhibit, why we serve, can you just explain a little bit about the long history of Native American veterans and why the question of why we serve, I guess, is is a complicated one to answer. Sure, and I think Councillor Gambrell really hit the nail on the head when she said that we still serve despite the treatment that Native people have gone through over the last, you know, 500 years of history on this continent with colonialism. And you find uh, that 
Native people were some of the first allies in, you know, starting in the 1600s with European colonists um, because they, the colonists realized they couldn't survive really in this, in this new land of theirs, of, you know, without allying with the people who knew it best. Uh, uh, and of course, that was to the detriment of, of, of their enemies, um, you know, which were often hereditary hereditary enemies of the tribe they allied with. So this, this started as small, you know, localized um, alliances that native nations made to try to secure their own sovereignty. And, and this is a story that um, changes, but not all that much throughout the, you know, the Revolutionary War, 1812, um, a civil war, you still see native nations trying to ally with different sides of uh, of um, combat to secure sovereignty in their homelands. And that doesn't always or often end up very well for them. Um, but so the reasons of why native people have served differ from individuals to families to um, to nations, depending on the time period and, and circumstances. But, um, you know, what we found talking at veterans is that Native veterans serve for all the reasons everybody else does, you know, to get an education, to get out of, you know, a bad situation or to, to see the world. But there's an extra layer that is uniquely Indigenous, uh, that is rooted in defending their own homelands. Uh, you know, one veteran told us, this is our land, you know, no, you know, we don't want it taken from us. Um, and if we don't fight for it, who will? Uh, so there's a, a deep commitment to their homelands. But also, um, you know, I was talking to a young Lakota researcher who's who's working on the the military history of his own tribe. And I was, I asked him, you know, your word for, for warrior, you know, does it translate well into English? He said, no, it really means more like service, service of our own people. And if that means laying down your life in the process, then that's what you do. But you're protecting your, your community, you're, you're serving your community. And that's why we see a lot of Native veterans have come home over the centuries and become leaders and activists for their rights and their sovereignty. I really want to get into more stories and, and kind of uh, some of the narratives uh, behind uh, the folks featured in the museum and obviously some of the work that you've done. I just want to I just want to kind of get an idea for when you're approaching sure. this question, what the mission and methodology is to actually execute. Mm. Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think listening is our mm. is part of the 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 mission of our museum is to work in partnership with native peoples. So for me, not having a background in military history specifically, I, I need to do a lot more listening <laughs> than, you know, than maybe somebody who, who had, you know, been researching. I used to be a museum curator for a tribe in California and I worked on a veterans exhibition with them. And so I felt I had a, a good handle on what, at least that tribe's, you know, um, relationship with war and combat was. But every single tribe, and we're talking more than 550 tribes in the United States, uh, has a different relationship and custom to war. And, you know, part of my learning process was that not, not all tribes have a warrior tradition. You know, definitely the Great Plains tribes, there's, um, you know, military societies in tribes like the Kiowa, 
But then you have tribes in uh, in California who are generally peace peaceful, and they didn't have that warrior tradition. Or you have tribes like the Hopi people, and we listen to Hopi people say, you know, we don't have any tradition of war. We are our worldview is about peace. So uh, we wanted to demonstrate the diversity of that approach. And so instead of organizing our pro our project or book or exhibition around um, a war starting in the colonial period, I wanted to go pre-European contact and see, you know, tell me what your traditions were about preparing for war. What was war like in this country? And we learned that it was a very different style. Um, there's a, a historian, Tom Holm, who calls it ritual warfare. The style of warfare in this country prior to Europeans was were was small skirmishes, sometimes just for status or resources. Um, there wasn't the large scale, uh, you know, the goal of killing your enemy outright. That that was a purely European style of war, and so there was a huge culture clash that happened um, when when Europeans came and brought a very different style of war here. So we had to do a lot of listening, um, you know, looking at a lot of new histories, especially ones written by native people. What kind of, um, what kind of themes do we see? So we, Mark Hirsch, my co-author and I started seeing some really clear themes that originated in colonial times, but still exist today mainly stereotypes about native people. And some of these could be called good stereotypes like that of a super warrior. Um, this, this myth that native people have some innate talent in war that's inborn rather than learned, right? So that, that has affected real people and still continues to do so. Where, uh, where um, you know, commanding officers will have this perception that native people have a greater talent at war, so they're put in more dangerous positions. So we see this happening in the Civil War, we see this happening in contemporary wars. Um, so it's a lot of listening, a lot of being opening, being open to changing your idea of how, um, how history has been constructed around um, combat and battles. Yeah, do you think that listening is what really helps you, I guess, trying to challenge and explore deeply held assumptions about Native Americans and military service? I do. I think there's, um, you know, there's a value called cultural humility. And it's about approaching, approaching people and communities, not assuming that I, I don't assume that I know more than they do. Hmm. Right. So I want to make sure that I understand things from their perspective. Um, an educator uh, from the Tohono O'odham, uh, uh, which is in southern Arizona, he was talking to me about their their traditions regarding um, warfare and how they, if if someone is killed, uh, the person who killed them has an obligation. To that family to complete that life um, that that they cut short. So you have an, and that's common in tribes like so, uh, Southern California, Kumeyaay, um, and related peoples in in the Southwest. Um, you know, having an obligation of empathy towards the person who is your enemy 
is such a different value than our contemporary society, right? So I, I want to be able to um, give an authentic idea of what these diverse experiences are and customs are in communities. Because so much of what's been written before about Native Americans and, uh, you know, there's deep scholarship has been done that's really fantastic, but it often removes the, the idea that there are actual people and individuals with stories out there. Uh, and there's also a, a, a tendency to glorify war. And so we intentionally didn't use the word heroes. We didn't, um, we try to stay away from phrases like warrior spirit so that we could provide some authenticity in our work. I believe it was you that wrote that many were drafted and wound up in uniform because Uncle Sam required them to do so. Can we start to get into the, I guess, very complicated answers to that question of uh, where, why we serve and several different examples, if you don't mind? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I think uh, the draft is a really interesting concept and application to Native people. And, and I think it starts being a, an issue for the federal government in World War I. So Native people actually wanted to serve in World War I, but uh, about a third were not citizens yet. Um, so when they approached draft boards, they, the draft boards didn't quite know what to do. And some Native people went to Canada to serve uh, instead. But the the federal government said, you know, said, okay, we can work this out legally. We'll, you know, we'll accept them in. But draft boards had a difficult time sort of categorizing Native people. Uh, they didn't have the sort of demographic um, <laughs> organization, uh, you know, measurements like they do today. And oftentimes, um, and, you know, Councillor Gambrell indicated this, if you had brown skin, um, you might go into a segregated unit, especially, particularly in the South. And that, that's true through World War II. Um, a lot of Native people in the South were uh, assigned to segregated units. Um, yeah, thank you for then, clearing that up, too, because I was talking to her about her family in, in Korea, and it's important to get that kind uh -huh. of perspective as well. Absolutely. Uh the and Korean think, War obviously happening after World War II for those that are uninitiated. Sorry, I get so into these history conversations. <laughs> I apologize. You keep going. Thank you so much, yeah, Alexandra. Sure. And stop me if I'm geeking out too much. I, uh, I could talk for, for hours. About no, you this, keep going. But, <laughs> um, you know, I think the, listening to Vietnam veterans is where the draft and um, the choice to serve was really taken away in in a very significant number number of people for a significant number of people um you know the hereditary uh participation in the military it was very um accepted for everyone to be uh in native communities to be participating in the military but the quantity of tours um you know i there's a story about um oh my goodness the pula family mm -hmm. in um in um in Anadarko, Oklahoma, or Kiowa, and uh, the, the the Pascal Cletus Pula, uh, uh, he was known to be the most decorated American Indian soldier in history. He served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Died in Vietnam. Uh, he earned forty-two medals and citations during the three wars. 
and he attempted to prevent his own son from going to Vietnam. He he enlisted in v- Vietnam um, at the same time, uh, trying to, uh, you know, with the understanding that, you know, two people from the same family couldn't be in the same theater of, theater of war. Well, they went anyway, and he was killed. Uh, his son did survive um, at that time. But, you know, you hear these stories, uh, um, you know, uh, one of our jury members who's Native Hawaiian told me that uh, his grandfather who raised him was a World War II veteran. And um, and the the man, Kavika, the, the uh, McCaig, who spoke to me, he says, you know, I was going to enlist uh, with the expectation that this is what this is just what we do. And he said, but my grandfather said, don't. I went so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, still a lot of different attitudes based on what their experiences were. You know, this, the, you know, again, as, as Counselor Gambrell mentioned, the PTSD and the effects of war. Um, uh, when and and with us running up against the uh, the end of the uh, the time here in the interview, sure, I just, sure, I just want to get into this part briefly because I, because this is yeah. so profound. This question of why we serve, did you find that mm-hmm. it could be unanswerable? It is unanswerable. It, it's not that it's unanswerable. There's mm. just a thousand answers, right? So it it's um, it, it's many layered and complicated, and I think that's really why we didn't try to answer it with one monolithic you know, answer. It's not simple. And what we, I think the whole point of our book is this history is very complicated. And we think the complicated story is the more interesting story. So I think you and I can geek out on this for so long. And that's why I think I got, I think I lost track of time a little bit here. Thank you so much for joining us, Alexandra uh, from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Frankie Graziano. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Tomorrow marks Veterans Day, and there are at least two events in our state that will recognize our Native American veterans. The Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Museum and Research Center holds an annual veterans powwow, inviting nearly 1,000 Native and non-Native veterans to celebrate. Here to talk about this event and the important history of Native American veterans in our state, Joining us on Zoom here, Robert Hayward. He's the director of marketing at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. And Wayne Reels, the cultural resources director at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. Both are members of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. Welcome to where we live, guys. Good morning, Frankie. Thank you for having us. Good question. Folks listening can join in on the conversation at 888-720-9677. They can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Robert, can I start with you? Can you tell us about the event? Yeah, yes. So this will be our 10th annual honoring of the Veterans Pow Wow. Doors will open at 10 a.m., grand entry at noon. We have uh, just over 18 artisans and craft vendors 
uh, from all over the Northeast and right down the coast. Uh, you know, it, it's a day that we are able to honor all Native and non-Native veterans. Uh, it's our staple event. It's something that we look forward to every year. Uh, we also will have a veterans brunch uh, from 10 a.m. to noon. Uh, that is free of charge to the first 75 uh, veterans that actually show up. So that's another way that we get to honor them. Wayne, is there anything in, in what Robert was just talking about in terms of the format or anything like that that you can point to in terms of the history and being like, wow, that's important that we do that? Well, Native veterans, uh, Native American veterans throughout the country will be holding these events, uh, powwows and dances. Um, um, so just to celebrate um, their service. Um, recognize, and it gives a chance for us to honor and recognize the service of our many um, warriors. Um, and we go back a long ways uh, when it comes to uh, warriors. On top of Counselor Gambrell speaking and being honored, Robert, what else can you tell me about some of the folks that will be getting special honors or any kind of dignitaries that will arrive there? Yeah, we have. I know Wayne can probably speak to that a little bit more. Um, you go ahead, Wayne. Well, this year um, we're focusing on honoring um, Native uh, Eastern Pequot veterans and Western Pequot veterans. Um, so uh, we uh, have a dance uh, competition, dance categories um, in honor of veterans, giving them a chance to come out. Uh, and uh, talk a little bit about their service, their time in the service, um, and family and the veterans who have uh, departed also come out and share um, a little bit about their loved ones uh, and their time in the service and their time in the community. Robert, anything to add based on what Wayne just said? No, Wayne. Wayne hit that one perfectly. It's you know again, it's it's a way for us to really honor our. Uh, you know, all, all of our veterans, and in particular this this year, we're uh, really focusing in on, uh, on on women with our Native American Heritage Month. We theme it every year, and, and this year has been particularly for Pequot women. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, Eastern Pequot Counselor Va- uh, v- Valerie Gambrell. I can't speak this morning, <laughs> but but uh, we're talking about the, the counselor and the former U.S. Uh, Army sergeant here. Why was it important that you you bring her into the fold here and 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 uh, honor her? Well, well, again, we're honoring um, all veterans, and Valerie is very decorated. She's one of the most uh, decorated veterans that we have still living uh, within the Pequot communities. Um, so it's always good, and like she said, she's never been honored before. I think I heard her say that, and that's that's kind of astounding. Um, for all the service that she's done uh, with the uh, armed services and in the Indian community here uh, in Pequot country, too. So um, every year, at our, even our annual commits, and we honor all of our veterans that date back all the way to Pequot War, uh, 1637, and everywhere in between. Um, so just to give them recognition uh, every year for uh, what they've done for their family, their tribe, and their country. Is there a specific ceremony or event you can appoint to as as being something that's really a, a hallmark for this year's event? I think it would have to be the, the honoring of all veterans. Um, Why this is the Native American uh, Veterans Powwow, um, don't get fooled by the title. Um, we honor all Native American veterans and non-Native American veterans um, for the service. Uh, 
So I, I think um, one of the highlights of the event, I, I, I believe, would be the, the honoring of the veterans. Um, we'll be giving them um, sweet grass uh, as a way of, of showing uh, um, um, respect for them and all that they've done. Um, and give them time to um, share a little bit uh, with the public. Wayne, as I understand it, the elements you have of a powwow usually are the feasting, dancing, and singing. Can you just tell me about the importance of a powwow as a, as a way to kind of get together and commemorate the, not just the service of Native Americans, but really the tradition? Well, the... Uh, and why the powwow factors have, into that. Thank you. Sorry. A lot of the um, today's dances and powwows um, formed around... Our dances and a lot of our dances and war dances, they were dances that um, we ended up uh, uh, building societies around and um, holding, having societies to hold them together. But a lot of them are war dances. Um, war dances um, from all types of areas, all types of war dances uh, were done. Um, the, the dances themselves were a way for us to connect with the Creator. We never went into battle without getting the blessings of the Creator. Um, with our dances, and we also use them to to train our youth before we take our youth out on the battlefield. They they needed, I guess you would say, basic training. Um, and a lot of these war dances that we do, um, especially the um, Eastern war dances, a theatrical dance that tells the story of battle or the hunt, um, and, and movements that you do uh, in the dance reflect the movements that you would do on the battlefield. Um, so it's pretty much almost like a basic training for the younger. Um, youth who are yet to go to war. Um, and a lot of these uh, dances that we bring into the arena, they uh, come off of these um, society uh, war dances uh, that we have uh, and we use today. So the uh, Native American veteran is, is uh, as it was, um, pre-contact and post-contact is still part of our festivals, our traditional festivals, even though um, today, our veterans, uh, mainly of uh, the U.S. are uh, in the U.S. services and um, are respected as warriors, uh, traditional warriors uh, in our arena, too, um, carrying in our flags, picking up our feathers. There is a story um, of the feather retrieval, which... Uh, yeah, I wanted to, to tap into that in, in terms of the, uh, the dancing and, and when this happens. It sounds like a significant moment. Yes, it is. It's it's very colorful, uh, very exciting um, dances to see. Um, dances uh, we call them intertribal dances because they come from all over um, Indian country, um, all different um, styles. So, uh, if you've never been to a festival uh, dance before, this is a great one to get to. Um, and it, it basically these these dances, whether they're veterans' power or not, are mainly to honor. Uh, and show uh, and celebrate um, life. These fe- these feathers, uh, I understand that there's significance around the colors because you were talking about how the the, the display is so colorful. It's not there's these, yeah, these colors of the feathers. There's intentionality behind it. Well, the colors the feathers have a lot of markings. Feathers uh, to us here in the east, and I believe even through the plains were significant and it showed honor in these feathers and the types of feathers that you've had um, and how they were decorated. Um, even today, there's uh, a Red Feather Society of Nakota 
um, natives, uh, which is pretty much honors the wounded uh, soldier, um, as they did before. It's an old tradition of theirs, um, but it was brought in contemporary forms to um, to recognize the Native American in the U.S. Uh, services today. Um, so we still uh, have our feathers of honoring um, today. We still use them uh, in a, a traditional form, uh, and they're still uh, respected in that way. They're still earned in that way or should be earned in that way, um, in which we decorate our regalias with, uh, in which we decorate our flagstaffs with, uh, and to show honor um, to our veterans uh, with with the feathers. Um, and they are honor gods, I mean, uh, who carries these flags in for all of our uh, festivals, um, what have you, uh, would be our veterans. And then I, I just wanted to talk more about this. We kind of alluded to it earlier. It's significant when the feather drops during a dance. There's kind of a special moment, I, I understand, where there's congregation and trying to make sure that there's unity. Can you just explain that process to me? Yeah, there's a few different stories of origin um, outside this region of the down feather, they call it, uh, in the powwow arena or during the powwow dance. Uh, when a feather falls to the ground, a lot of times it represents a fallen warrior. Uh, and sometimes it represents, uh, in, in some, uh, the lost feather of a warrior and the retrieval of it by warriors uh, and, um, and the courage that it took uh, to retrieve the feather. I think I heard someone mention earlier the armor that we have as uh, warriors, even in battle, um, from the counting of coup um, to the retrieval of the feathers. So um, what would happen if the feather falls, the whole power would stop. Um, things would come to a halt. We would gather up four veterans um, to retrieve the feather. Um, a dance ceremony, a tobacco ceremony would be performed, and the feather would be retrieved. Robert, I I was looking at a picture. It's similar to, it's similar Sorry, to go ahead, Wade. No Sorry, I apologize. <laughs> I, I think no. I think it's similar to No Man Left Behind. We we have a way of not only retrieving warriors uh, off the battlefield, not only um, also foes too. Um, so uh, it was a, a good way um, for us to um, honor our warriors. And is this the, the retrieval of the feathers? Is this something that happens a lot, or is it something that just uh, if it's something that happens, it's something that you just really jump to? It can. Uh, most of the time, it doesn't happen, depending on how large the power. Because ah. um, as I, I stated, uh, a lot of the um, a lot of our regalia is uh, uh, I don't want to say decorated, but we have feathers on them uh, that represent certain things. And if you don't tie them down, they fall off. And once a feather hits the the dance arena, uh, things come to a halt. Um, And, you know, to the, uh, just to have a feather, to wear feathers, you've got to be given the right. Um, You you have to be given the right to wear the feathers. You have to know the responsibility uh, of wearing a feather, what it means, what it represents. so it's it's a really big deal um, when they fall. And um, usually the first feather that falls, you'll go through that ceremony, that dance ceremony, tobacco ceremony. And sometimes after that, uh, if a feather falls, they'll, they'll go through a tobacco ceremony and retrieve the feather. Robert, you're going to get my last question here. I understand there's a, a museum exhibit. I saw a picture of this online where... Native veterans from the Pequot War to present day are honored. Can you just tell me a little bit about that history? 
Yeah, absolutely. So that's something we actually just installed within the past year. And it's, it's, you know, it's such a minor thing that, you know, as of now, but we plan to, uh, you know, within the next year or two, really unravel that into a much bigger monument uh, to honor even ones that are serving today. Uh, but for us to be able to honor, you know, all the way back from the Pequot War to present day is something that we that we're really, really proud to do. I just want to give you guys 15 seconds each because we're running out of time just to tell me about why should people should uh, attend the event and why it's so important. Just 15 seconds if you can each, starting with Wayne. Well, you know, as it relates in the Bible, the Bible said there's no greater love than to lay down one's life. I think uh, when we look at our veterans, even the Pequot Veterans Warriors Society, it's, it's, um, warriors who look out for their family. Um, lay down their lives um, for the welfare of their people. Um, and I think um, the what, what is going on this weekend is uh, the USA veterans um, who have done that and who have laid down their lives and, and uh, sacrificed a lot um, for this country. And you briefly, Rob, Robert. Yeah, yes, and the echo. Exactly Thank you, Wayne. Yep, you it. go ahead, Robert, yep. It's something that, you know, is we're always very, very proud to honor every uh, veteran in this country. Uh, and as Councillor Gambrell said, you know, it's, you know, we do it for the love of the land, uh, you know, and, and from day one, we continue to hold the land. Both natives and non-natives, but I understand it. The annual Veterans Powwow takes place this Saturday at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center. More details and the link to register are on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Thank you guys so much for joining us, Robert and Wayne, to talk about this. Yes, thank you. Today's show thank was you. produced by Katie Pellico, and man, did Katie do a great job uh, helping us feature the perspective of Native Americans who've served. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Hey, download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. For Connecticut Public, I'm Frankie Graziano. Thank you for listening. <laughs>